of bread. A friend of mine on a journey, oh, that was really good. I'm just not that fast. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? If he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give, give good... Ugh, that's easy for me to say. Give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? All right. So the parable is kind of that whole first section. And then Jesus gives some extra comments. What's the point? What do you think the point is? Write it down right now on your bulletin or uh, in your phone. What do you think the point of that parable is? Good job. Everyone's writing. I love it. All right. So how many of you wrote down something along the lines of keep asking in prayer no matter what or persevere in prayer? How many of you had something like that? All right. A number of you. All right. So that's kind of been the typical uh, traditional Western interpretation of the parable. And if we interpret the parable that way, the point ultimately becomes, if at first God says no to our prayers, then I just need to keep praying. I need to wear God down until he relents and uh, and say yes to my prayer. Now, if if that was in your mind, I can't fault you for thinking that, because at first blush, maybe the text seems to suggest that. Here's the question right off the bat, though. Does that conclusion seem to line up with what we know of God's character? Does that conclusion line up with what we know of God revealed in His Son, Jesus Christ? The idea that we have to persist in prayer to wear God down so that He will answer our request just somehow doesn't feel exactly right. It it doesn't kind of sit well with us. All right, so we got some uneasiness in our stomachs, but we don't really interpret the Bible just because we have a vague feeling that it might not be the right interpretation. Are there some solid guidelines to guide us? Well, there are. And the first one is actually one Greek word. It's the Greek word anadion. I want to read you the NIV, the New International Version, uh, the 1984 version. So this was kind of the one that was in use for a long, long time. It says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is friend, yet because of the man's persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So they've translated that Greek word anadion to mean persistence. Keep on knocking, keep on asking, and then God will give you what you want. 
So then I wanted to see what the King James said. And uh, the original King James says this. says, I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. Uh, I had to look up the, the word importunity. I'm just going to be honest. It actually means persistence. It, persistence in solicitation or asking. So you've got to keep on asking. So both translations uh, translated it the same. Now, this is very interesting. The latest uh, translation of the NIV translates it this way. And Delaney is going to throw up the slide for it. It says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So that's pretty interesting. They changed the nuance of the word. They changed the interpretation. So the obvious question is, why did it take so long? Why did it take them so many years? And the, actually, the answer actually is, is wrapped up with an understanding of culture, of first century Palestinian culture. And I want to introduce you this morning to a very amazing dude. This guy's name is Kenneth Bailey. And he wrote this book called Poet and Peasant, and then a kind of second volume they squished together called Through Peasant Eyes. And this guy was really remarkable. He's American originally. He's a Presbyterian minister and scholar. And what he did is he went to the Middle East, and he lived and worked there for many, many years. And he embarked on the most amazing project. He found that in southern Egypt, in the mountains of Lebanon, and kind of the northern parts of Syria and Iraq, in the early 80s when he was doing this, that there were villages that were essentially untouched. That they had a culture, that a social culture that had been preserved for 2,000 years, that these villages were almost exactly in their social culture like Jesus' original audience would have been. And once he discovered this, he thought, wow, this is an incredible opportunity. And uh, they had really two values. I mean, obviously they were isolated villages, so that kind of helped preserve their social culture. But the second thing also was that their huge cultural value was changelessness. They valued things that stayed the same over time. In fact, it's said that the finest compliment you could give a person in the village, especially an older man, was Hafiz al-Takalid. And it means the preserver of the customs. So essentially, if you lived your life and you kept things the same in the village, you're a hero. They value that hugely. See, you can see why things would stay the same. And plus, it was the early 80s. There weren't uh, cell phones and kind of technology hadn't kind of obliterated everything in our world. So these guys could remain a little bit isolated. So what Kenneth Bailey did is he would show up in these villages. And he he did this really amazingly. He, He... He had to be friends with people in the village for over five years. That was one of his requirements. And the reason he had to do that is because culturally, though the villagers, if he asked them a question, they would always tell him what he wanted to hear because he was brand new. He was a stranger. He was a foreigner. And their cultural value was be polite to the foreigners and 
just tell them whatever they want to hear. Just be nice to them. But he realized that once you're friends with them over a period of time, over five years, then they kind of just treat you like a friend. And the answers become very honest. And so what he would do is he would tell them the parables of Jesus. And all the way along, at all the crucial points of the story, he would say, now if this happened in your village, how would you react? And he very carefully recorded all of this. And the results were amazing. In all three of the, or all four of those areas, the responses were exactly the same. And he told them, I think there's 37 different parables of Jesus. And he said they were uniform in the responses in every single one. And he goes, it's incredible. It's like having a window in history. You can go, you can look through it and see what would the people that Jesus originally told these parables to How would they have reacted? How would they have understood? What were their customs? And just to be absolutely super careful in his research, he had four safeguards. He says the person he's talking to to, would have had to spend the first 20 years of his life in a conservative, basically illiterate, isolated peasant community. That was qualification number one. Number two, the primary method of collecting the information must be oral conversation in Arabic. And he said it's a word culture uh, they have in the Middle East. Nearly everything that matters takes place orally in conversation. So it had to be done in conversation. Number three, the primary resource person with whom I talk to must be a person I've known for at least five years. It guards against receiving the stylized answers of the Easterner responding to the foreigner. We talked about that. And number four, the resource person with whom I talk must know enough about the biblical witness to understand the question put to him. They mustn't have some vague idea about God, Jesus, the Bible, etc. All right, so the results that Bailey found are incredible. The reason I want to explain that to you is because throughout the parable series, I'm going to reference this book and his research. So what did he find out about this particular parable? Well, he found out that there's two cultural values really in play in this parable. And he said the first one is hospitality. And when a stranger shows up in the village, the person must be welcomed, they must be fed, and they must be housed. To not do so would actually bring shame on the entire village. It's really interesting. That's a really interesting cultural thing. Because, you know, if you at your house, if your friend comes to visit you, and you're kind of a jerk to them, and you don't feed them, you don't house them, you make them sleep out in like a tent in your yard, like leaks in the rain, that's kind of your deal. Like, I feel bad for your friend, but I don't personally feel shame about it. I was like, I don't know, they didn't really like you or something. But not so in their culture. If you didn't treat the guest well, it shamed the entire village. It's a really different cultural thing going on there. Second thing, the other major cultural value at play is the avoidance of shame and that's really hard for us as westerners to get our minds around but it's really true in the middle east it's true in central asia and all of the asian countries the avoidance of shame is the underlying basis of all of their actions to bring shame on yourself your family or your village is something that they just cannot be tolerated in life they'd rather die than do that And so in regards to the practice of hospitality, 
one of the things that they would do is try to put more food before the guests than they can actually eat. And back in June, when I took a course on this, on the parables, the prof, Daryl Johnson, he had been a pastor in the Philippines for five years. And uh, he got to really enjoy the Philippines. He met so many Filipino people. And he would go to their house. They would invite him for a meal. And Daryl, being a really polite, friendly guy, they would feed him, kind of, they would set the plate before him. And he was like, wow, this is amazing. Thank you. It would be very complimentary. He would eat it. And they would say, did you like it? And he would say, yeah, it was wonderful. Thank you. And in that culture, that means I want more. So they give him more. And he's like, holy smokes, man, I think I'm pretty full already, but I don't want to offend him. Like, so he'd eat a second one. And <laughs> they'd be like, so did you like it? Yeah, it was really great. Thank you so much. And they're like, man, this guy wants more. And they'd give him more. And this guy finally, he's like, please stop. And he asked people, he's like, what is going on? And they're like, oh, you're doing it all wrong, Daryl. You have to leave something on the plate. That means you're stuffed, you're full. They have done their job. They have given you more than you can eat. He's like, oh, that would have been helpful to know. So what happens in this parable? This guy has a friend show up at midnight. And obviously we wonder, what what is the deal? Why would someone show up at midnight? Well, you got to remember, it's the Middle East. It's really hot. And so people would wait until after the, the the hottest part of the day, and they would usually start traveling in the early afternoon. And they would travel and travel, and finally they would get there. And this guy, obviously, it was a long journey, and he got there, and it was midnight. And so his friend is happy to see him. And he realizes, oh my goodness, I've got nothing to set before him. And so he goes and he knocks on this guy's door. And what he wants is bread. Now, for our minds, we go, great, let's get some bread. Maybe we can get some cheese. We'll go get some pickles, maybe some cold cuts, whatever. This will be great. Our minds think the bread is the meal. But in fact, in that culture, the bread is not the meal. The bread is the utensil. And so when he asks for three loaves of bread, he's actually asking for the utensils for three different meals. They didn't use knives and forks. They used bread. And the way they would do it is they would take a loaf of bread and they would break off a chunk, good nice chunk of bread, and there would be something like a lamb stew or a vegetable stew. And they would, pa- they would pass the bread around and everyone would take a big chunk and then you dip it in the stew and you would eat it. It's actually really hygienic because you don't double dip, you get a new piece of bread. And so I'm going to pass the bread around. If you want, you can break off a chunk or you can just look at it, pass it down. But you got to think of this, he's actually asking for the utensils. That's what he's doing. And people will say, okay, if that's the utensils, where does the rest of the meal come from? Well, apparently the tradition was you go ask for the bread at one house and then you'd go ask for a little lamb at the next house. Then you go ask for some carrots and onions and whatever else they put in it. And then you would take it all back and you would go back to your house. And you would make this meal for your friend. So that's what's going on in this parable. Now, we're starting to get enough background to properly understand what in the world is going on in this parable. Now, here's the thing. We... When we read that, 
we kind of wonder, what is, what is happening? What, what is the question Jesus is asking? Well, apparently Kenneth Bailey says the most accurate and the best way to translate that first sentence of the parable is really not, our English says, suppose. It's kind of like throwing out a scenario. Suppose this happened. But really, Kenneth Bailey says the best way to translate those words is, can you imagine? Can you imagine a scenario where you have a guest going to a neighbor to borrow bread and the neighbor offers ridiculous excuses about, oh, my door is locked and my kids are sleeping. That's the best way to understand this parable. And in that village, remember, if you're the guest of one person, you're the guest of the entire village. And remember, he won't just go ask at one house for the bread. He'll keep going and ask at other things. By morning, everybody will know that there's a guest in the village. And he's staying at so-and-so's house. Now, Jesus tells this whole parable, and he says, Can you imagine that you would go and knock on the door and ask for some utensils to put before your guest, and the person would offer these lame excuses about a locked door? and kids sleeping? The respected response in that culture is, no, we can't imagine that. That would be ridiculous. No one would do that. All right, now we're going to back up a few verses. And one of the basic rules in biblical interpretation is context. You don't just pull like one verse or one little section out. You got to see how it fits with what comes before and what comes after. So we're going to back up to verse 1, and Delaney's going to throw that up for us. Thank you. Hungry congregation. I got half a loaf left. Well, that's awesome. Oh, Vince. We got, we got to be careful. We got to be fair. <laughs> Not quite half a loaf. All right. So we're going to read those first few verse, first verses. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. You see what sets up that parable is the disciples say, teach us to pray. Jesus gives them a model prayer. We, we typically call that the Lord's Prayer. So Jesus gives them a model prayer. He teaches them how to pray. And then he tells the parable. So the parable tells us something about the one we pray to. And that is huge. That is key. And what is the parable trying to tell us? Well, the point really of this parable is to give us confidence in the one that we pray to. And if you think about that, isn't that the perfect addition to an example of how to pray? Jesus says, here's how you pray, and here's a story that reminds you how much confidence you can have in the one that you pray to. God the Father will hear your prayer and he will answer. So what does the parable add to our understanding? 
Delaney is going to throw up the next slide for us. Just like the man in the parable will get up and get his neighbor the bread because of his honor, so God the Father has that Greek word anadion. He always acts in ways that honor his name. Moses asked God, by the way, what's your name? And God said, my name is Yahweh. And that's the covenant name in Hebrew, and it means I am who I am. And God said to Moses, I will be your God. Everything that makes me God, I will give to you. And the Father will never, ever shame his name. Exodus 32 contains an amazing scene. God has done incredible miracles. He has rescued the, uh, the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. They were there for over 400 years. Pharaoh did not want to lose his workforce. God sent 10 plagues. Finally, Pharaoh relents. And uh, they start out, and they're at the edge of the, the Red Sea, and they're about to cross. Pharaoh changes his mind. He's going to chase them down and capture them and bring them back. God opens up the Red Sea. They cross on dry land. Pharaoh comes in behind, and God allows the waters to come back took out the Egyptian army. Absolutely incredible miracles. The most amazing miracles the world had ever seen. God rescued an entire people group and set them on their way to the promised land. But it doesn't take too long and these Hebrew people are grumbling. They're complaining. They're whining. And, if, and not too far down the road, they actually, while Moses is up on a mountain talking to God, they get all their jewelry and all their gold, they melt it down and they make an idol, a golden calf, and they begin to worship it. That does not make God very happy. This is what it says in Exodus 32, verse 9. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, talking to Moses, into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? And Delaney's going to... The next slide, verse 12, says, Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. You see what the crucial point that Moses brought up to God? He says, what will your reputation be? What will the Egyptians think? And God says, you're right. I have to honor my name, my reputation. And God says, I won't destroy them. And over and over and over through the first half of the Bible, that theme comes up. For the sake of your great name. Psalm 23, one of those famous passages in the Bible. Have you ever noticed in verse 3? Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths. Why? For his name's sake. The result is incredible confidence and insurance for you and I in prayer. God the Father loves us, but even if he didn't, he would still act in ways that honor his name. 1 Samuel 12.22, For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. 
So the point of the parable ultimately becomes not ask repeatedly until you wear God down and he finally says yes to your request. The point becomes rather ask with confidence. As the NIV translates it, shameless audacity or boldness. Ask boldly. God will answer. Why? Because of his reputation, because of his great name. You see, God doesn't want it to get out around the village that he was stingy, that he said no, that he refused to come down and listen to the request. And when we think about the prayers that we offer in life, you know, sometimes the answer is yes, exactly the way we are imagining it. Exactly what we are praying, God says yes, and he blesses us with that. That happens sometimes in life. Sometimes God says yes, but the answer is different than we expected, different than we had imagined. But once a little bit of time goes by, we look back and go, you know what? God's answer was way better than what I asked for. I'm so glad God didn't give me exactly what I asked for. He gave me what I needed. Sometimes God says no. In his will, in his providence, in his plan, what we think is the absolute best, what our hearts want so much, God says, you may not understand right at this moment, but if I gave you that, the long-term effects wouldn't be good for you or for others around you. Sometimes that's hard to take. Sometimes that's really hard to understand. Sometimes God says yes, but he makes us wait. I remember talking to a person who had prayed for their child, for their, their son, for years and years and years. I think it was 32 years they prayed for their son. And finally, that person came to Christ. The son said yes. And the person said, I don't know why it took so long. But they said, one thing I do know, that all those years of praying, you know what it did? It changed my heart. And he goes, maybe in God's providence, part of what he was doing there was enlarging in my heart a compassion for other people who don't yet know Christ, for other parents who are praying for their kids. And they said, I don't know why it took so long, but in the end, I can see the good that God was doing. Well, immediately after the parable, Jesus goes on to give some straight-ahead commands and encouragement about prayer. We're going to read verses 9 to 13 of Luke 11. It says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? instead so or if he asks for an egg will you give him a scorpion if you then though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give the holy spirit to those who ask him so when we get out of our heads the original interpretation and we look at these verses through fresh eyes we find that they don't contradict that new interpretation they complement it So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It doesn't actually say, ask repeatedly and it will be given to you. Keep on seeking and eventually you'll find. Knock long and loud and 
finally the door will be open. It's not what it says. This statement by Jesus is meant to give us confidence in prayer, assurance that our Heavenly Father is hearing us. And that's backed up by Jesus' very next statement. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. And just to absolutely slam dunk the point that the basis of our confidence in prayer is the character of God and His unwavering commitment to the glory of His name and His reputation, Jesus asks those questions at the end about the Father. Which of one of you, if He asks, for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. And what's the request at the end? Jesus says, How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know, I've pretty continuously saying that in sermons that the difference between the, the Christian life and the way that any other world religion or any other faith sets it out. The difference is that every other world religion or faith says, here's the standard, now try really hard to work hard to meet it. But the Christian faith says, here's the standard, now I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to live inside you, to empower you, to allow you to march forward, to become more Christ-like over time. Jesus says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So what do I envision us taking away from this sermon today? Well, number one, that feeling of confidence in prayer. How many times a day do you say little prayers? I'm not sure about you, but sometimes I slip into thinking that God is waiting to not answer my request. That he's a really hard person to ask. But this parable reminds us that, you know what? The heart of God the Father is of a proud dad, encouraging his kids on, wanting to stay in communication, wanting for us to ask. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never prayed before. I challenge you to start. You don't have to use fancy words. Just tell God what's on your heart. If you go, if you, maybe you've grown discouraged in prayer. I hope this parable helps kind of re-energize your desire to pray. You know, for every one of you that has been praying for a neighbor, a friend, or a coworker to come to Jesus, this parable says, just like the guy knocking on the door, asking for bread, it says, pray boldly. And God will answer, you know why? Because of his name, because of his reputation. For every one of you who has been praying for our communities. As we have over the door tops, pray for the peace and prosperity of the community I've called you. Maybe that's Crofton, Shemaina, Saltaire, Ladysmith, Cedar. Pray boldly. You know why God will answer? Because he wants to honor his name. For every one of you that has been pouring out your heart to God to see a marriage restored, pray boldly. God will honor his name. For every teenager, maybe that's been dealing with bullying at school, needing help to deal with those jerks. Pray boldly. God will honor his name. For every parent that's been praying for a rebellious son or daughter that's way off track spiritually, pray boldly. God will honor his name. Jesus commands us to ask for the power 
and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's the secret of the Christian life. Jesus said, ask, so we need to do it. Can any of you imagine a, holy, a heavenly father who would refuse your request at midnight? No. You know what? Jesus can't either. Let's pray. Greta, I believe, is going to come pray for us.